we ask the question that was posed by the crowds in John chapter 12. The crowds are pressing in on Jesus and they say to him, who is this son of man? Jesus has been talking about his ministry. He's been using the title son of man and the crowds respond and say, tell us who this son of man really is. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one with Pastor Paul Twiss in his six-part series, What's in a Name? Pastor Paul's text for this series is the seventh chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel. Pastor Paul Twiss is new at Bethany Bible Church, on the job for barely two months, but he has taken the time out to be with us today, and we catch up with him in his church office for this conversation. So welcome, Pastor Paul. What's in a name? The series we're about to jump into is about the importance of a name and an eternal one. That's right, Matt. I've chosen to focus this series first on the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7 in which he describes a vision he saw while in exile. In the vision, there first appears four great beasts, and the fourth is the most terrifying. Two figures then follow in the narrative. The first is the Ancient of Days, who is seated on a throne and puts the beast to death. A second figure then appears, one like a son of man, and he is presented to the Ancient of Days and is given dominion and glory. We'll be looking at this passage and Matthew's Gospel over the next few days to learn the significance of the name Son of Man. Thank you, Pastor Paul. A topic of major importance for all believers. Here's part one of What's in a Name? We're in Daniel 7 tonight. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. We're looking at the title Son of Man and our text will be Daniel 7. Just two verses in the middle there, verses 13 and 14. But just in order to orientate our thoughts to what's going on, I want to read to you the whole vision. So beginning at verse 1 up until the end of verse 14. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 reads, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. 
It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So reads the word of the living God. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father, refuse thy name, or if that will not be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, thou not a Montague. What's Montague? It is neither hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Be some other name. What's in a name? Familiar words taken from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, a tale of two star-crossed lovers whose relationship is hindered by virtue of their names. In this short excerpt that I read for you, Juliet's frustration is evident as she proclaims the supposed trivial value of a name. A rose, she says, by any other name would still smell as sweet. She's suggesting that for both people and objects, their value, their worth, is not wrapped up in the title that they possess. What's in a name? Juliet cries. And her point seems reasonable. It seems logical. Romeo and Juliet is, of course, 
a play about an ongoing feud between two families all around the point of a name. It seems irrational or unnecessary. If it were not for this disagreement, these two might otherwise enjoy blissful matrimony. And yet if we take a step back for just a minute and consider what Shakespeare thought of the issue, it seems that he had a different view. You see, Shakespeare is in control of the narrative. Shakespeare's pen is on the paper, and it's not long after this scene that both lovers' lives end in tragedy. What's in a name, Juliet cries, and it would seem that Shakespeare replies, very much. Very much, my dear, your life will end on account of it. Now, all of this, I say, just by way of introduction, to help us orientate our minds around the possible significance of a name. As we move from Shakespeare to the Bible, I would argue that names in the inspired text are often the most overlooked part of the narrative. Very seldom do we really consider a character's name, the meaning inherent to it, and the theology that it may bring to the action. Adam means taken from the ground. Eve, the giver of life. Cain, begotten with the Lord. Abel, his life was a vapor. Seth, one appointed. Noah, meaning rest. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Abram, the exalted father. Abraham, the father of many. Jacob, takes by the heel. Moses, drawn from the water. David, beloved of the Lord. Solomon, bringer of peace. Isaiah, the Lord saves. Jeremiah, the Lord throws down. Ezekiel, God is strong. Joel, God is powerful. Nahum, comfort. Zephaniah, the Lord hides. On and on and on the list goes. All of it making the point that names are by no means insignificant. Names bring theology to the text. We'll be looking at just two names, two names used of our Lord Jesus, perhaps two of the most familiar names used for him, that of Son of Man and Son of God. I want to consider what these names mean and how they bring theology to the narrative of the Gospels. Not only that, but how a proper understanding of these two names, Son of Man and Son of God, necessarily affect the way in which you live your daily life. Tonight, we think through Son of Man. Tonight, we ask the question that was posed by the crowds in John chapter 12. There's no need to turn there. In John chapter 12, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus, and they say to him, who is this Son of Man? Jesus has been talking about his ministry. He's been using the title Son of Man, and the crowds respond and say, tell us who this Son of Man really is. Now, they were asking a very good question. In fact, I would go as far to say that they maybe didn't ask just how significant a question it was. Who is this Son of Man? Why is it such a significant question? Well, consider, just as a starter, the curious fact that Son of Man in the Gospels is only ever used by Jesus. 
As you examine the gospel narratives, it is a name that is only ever found on Jesus's lips. John chapter 12, you say, well, isn't that an exception? Well, really, that's the only time that the crowds use it, and they're using it in response to Jesus calling himself Son of Man. So it is only ever found by Jesus on Jesus' lips. Nobody is addressing Jesus as Son of Man, but he is constantly addressing the crowds using the name Son of Man for himself. That's curious. There is some significance to that. There is meaning in that simple observation. We could go on and observe not only is it true that it is only ever found on the lips of Jesus, but Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. He uses that more than any other name in all the Gospels. That's curious. It is significant. There is theological significance to that. We could go on and observe the fact that he uses it in every single ministry context in his life. Jesus uses Son of Man in reference to his lowly, humble, earthly significance, existence. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus uses it in reference to his suffering. The Son of Man must be handed over and killed. And then, of course, Jesus uses it in reference to his future coming in glory. From now on, you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of power. The full spectrum is there. Every ministry situation that we can think of, Jesus is seeing fit to employ the title Son of Man. That's not an accident. There is significance to that simple observation. And so I say, it's a really good question to say, who then is this Son of Man? What is its significance? How does it bring theology to the text? And how does it impact the way in which you live? I want to ask that question tonight three times. We're going to ask it three times of this text in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And right there, you may be saying, well, hang on, why are we not going to look at Son of Man in the Gospels first? If it has Christological significance, why don't we begin in the Gospels? But you see, the Gospel Son of Man theology is built upon Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 lays the foundation for Son of Man theology in the Gospels. To go straight to the Gospels to look at the meaning of Son of Man would be, in many senses, to turn up halfway through the movie. You don't go up, turn up halfway through the movie and expect to fully understand all the characters involved and the plot line. We have to begin further back in the Old Testament. We have to see how it lays a foundation that informs us of how Jesus is using the Son of Man in the Gospels. We're affirming here the interconnectedness of Scripture. We affirm that God wrote this book. So we would not only expect there to be complete theological cohesion, but we also see many connections. And as Jesus uses over and over and over again the phrase Son of Man with reference to himself, he is pulling on the theology of Daniel chapter 7. So we will be in this text tonight asking the question, who is this Son of Man? 
three times, each time from a slightly different perspective, each time seeing a different facet of his being. And my prayer is that as we see more fully the significance of this title, we would grow in our understanding of Christ, we would grow in our love for him, our worship of him, and we would grow in our obedience to him. So let us ask for the first time, who is this son of man? And the first answer we get is that he is the second Adam who reverses the fall. He is the second Adam who reverses the fall. Look at the text again, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As we consider this phrase, son of man, it is helpful to know first and foremost that it occurs all the way through the Old Testament. This is by no means the first occurrence of this phrase. In just about every book of the Old Testament scriptures, it can be found somewhere either in the singular or the plural, sons of men. Elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures, it could be more literally translated, son of Adam. More literally translated, son of Adam. And that's an important point to know because it forms an implicit link with the first man, namely Adam. Indeed, the very, very first time this phrase occurs in the Bible is in Genesis 11. In the plural form, sons of men, you'll remember Genesis 11, of course, is the Tower of Babel incident. And it's an interesting story to study. When you study that narrative, what you see is that it is crafted in such a way so as to point us back to Genesis 3. Even as we think through the big picture story, God creates in Genesis 1 and 2. We have the fall in Genesis 3. Genesis 4, sin explodes. And so it continues until God floods the earth. He wipes the slate clean, as it were. He starts over. And it's immediately after that event that we get to Genesis 11, and we see mankind doing the same thing all over again. It is the fall, take two. And so it's appropriate that in that context, sons of men or sons of Adam first appears. It is saying that the sons of Adam are just like their dad. They're no different. And what this does is that it sets a trajectory throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The use of sons of men there in Genesis 11 sets a course for the rest of the Old Testament wherein we understand that that phrase, son of man, sons of men, speaks of the fallenness of mankind. Son of man or sons of men speaks of the fallenness of mankind. They are wicked creatures. They are depraved. They are lost and hopeless and in need of a saviour. Not only that, but the use of son, sons of men or son of man invokes the fallenness of creation. Not just the fallenness of mankind, but that phrase, 
invokes the fallenness of creation. Again, don't forget, Adam means taken from the earth. And don't forget that when Adam sinned, he pulled down not only the entire human race, but the entire universe, galaxies, stars and planets and solar systems became broken when Adam sinned. So the son of man terminology taps into the reality of the fall in its entirety. The fallenness of mankind, yes, and the fallenness of the created order. If we were to ask the question, who is this son of man, prior to Daniel 7, the answer would be, he is Genesis 3 in the flesh. He represents everything that is fallen. And with this background, it is with some surprise that we turn to Daniel chapter 7 and we see another son of man. We see another son of man, but he is unlike all the rest. The storyline takes a turn at Daniel chapter 7. Unlike all previous sons of men, this one does not fail. Unlike all previous sons of men, this one is not weak. He is not sick. He is not rebellious. He is not wicked. He is not hopeless, but he is victorious. This son of man is triumphant and glorious. There is a shift in the Son of Man narrative when we get to Daniel chapter 7. What is the point of this abrupt change? We'll look closely at the text. Did you notice how the vision is reported in verse 2, beginning with four winds stirring up the great sea? Maybe I could paraphrase and say the vision begins with winds moving over the water. Did you notice how in verse 3, four earthly human kings are being reported as beasts? Beasts of the field, you might say, who rise up out of the created order. It is interesting to note how Daniel begins the vision with a wind over the waters and with earthly human kings being pictured as beasts rising up out of the created order. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul began with an illustration from the play Romeo and Juliet in which Juliet opines, what's in a name? Today, a surname shouldn't have a bearing on importance or acceptance, but Scripture has a far different perspective for the naming of persons. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus continually refers to himself as the Son of Man. That name signifies that Jesus the Christ is the true incarnate God alive today. Have you received him? If you'd like to know more about Jesus Christ and the good news he brings to all who accept him, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. 
timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, click Broadcasts to hear this message again and many other teachings from God's Word, the Bible, to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a local church, you're invited to come worship with us. Bethany's services are at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. each Sunday at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. You're also welcome to join the live stream on the church website, bethanyto.org. Hope you'll join us tomorrow, part two of What's in a Name. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.